Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, episode two of the 2022 Lenten season. I'm Carl Stevens, and I'm joined by... I'm Molly Cook. And... Oh, I'm Holly Engel. <laughs> and today we will be discussing uh, Rada Blank's, I believe, 2020 film, the 40-year-old version. And I, I rewatched it yesterday, and I have to tell you, too, as I was rewatching it, I was... I felt myself blushing, and I thought, was I crazy? Like, when Jen and I were discussing including this movie in this list, did we remember, like, how profanity-laden and crude <laughs> the humor is? I, I don't think we did. <laughs> I mean, the thing that, like, it, the profanity didn't bother me. It was mm. just, like, so gratuitous as well. You mean the sex or yeah. the sexuality? The sexuality of it. Not, like, I guess the sex itself was, I guess, like, tasteful, if not protracted but yeah um just the way that that sex was ever present and undercurting <laughs> literally everything in the movie surprised me I was like oh I can't wait to talk about this for a church podcast <laughs> yeah that's a challenge what did you think did it shock your sensibilities Holly yeah I was not expecting that to be um I, I mean I, I liked it but I wasn't expecting that to be the um a movie for church podcasts, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I guess all this is a, a way of saying, dear listener, that if you were scandalized by this movie, uh, apologies are rendered. You're um, not alone. You're not alone, <laughs> yeah. Even the people who picked it are slightly scandalized by it, so um, such is life. But to leap on into it, um, We'll go to our three questions. The first question is, what experiences of metaphorical wilderness do the characters in the film go through? Do either of you have like a good, just off the dome answer to this? Yeah, sure. So Rada is staring down her 40th birthday and entering middle age and all of that, all that comes with that. So that's sort of her wilderness that she's experiencing. Um, contemporaneously, she's also dealing with a decision about whether how, where to go next in her playwriting slash artistic career. Um, and she's navigating, well, really not navigating, deliberately not navigating her grief over the death of her mother. Right. Avoiding, mm -hmm. avoiding her grief. Did you see anything else, Holly? Uh, I mean, yeah, Molly about summed it up. Um, but I, I guess there's also, with the whole 40th birthday impending, it's almost like a midlife crisis when you get to that point and you say, what am I doing with my life? Why am I here? And even as a teacher, she was feeling like she wasn't doing, that she wasn't adequate. So this huge um, hurdle of inadequacy, of course, mixed with the grief of um, dealing with her mother's death. Yeah. And that, I mean, one, it's a really funny movie. I hope you, I hope you yeah. found it funny. Like, I found myself laughing out loud again and again and again. But um, there were so many dead mothers in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, almost the first scene, she gets on a bus, and the driver's about to pull away, and he stops for her, and she says, you made your mother proud. And he says, my mother is dead. <laughs> and, then, and then she kind of... She doesn't know what to do, so she reaches out <laughs> as if to comfort him by touching his shoulder, and he has he wants nothing to do with it. And it's, I thought it was a little like it was introducing the idea that what she really wants is somebody to comfort her, but she doesn't know how to ask for it, nor does she really expect anyone to to take that role. And Molly, you were alluding to the fact that her brother keeps calling to say, "When are you going to come help clean out mom's stuff?" Yeah. Well, that's not really a very comforting gesture, is it? That's more like a let's get on with 
life kind of gesture? I would, yeah, I mean, it depends on what you find comforting. And we didn't get to explore too much of her brother's character, but I think he's meant to represent sort of like this foil to her more like artistic sensibilities and like being like kind of a straight and narrow analytical person. And as one of those people myself, Mm. um, I can definitely say that that is probably how I deal with, I would deal with grief is just like, all right, what are the next steps, A, B, C, D that I have to do? And cleaning out their mom's stuff might be one of those steps. Yeah. So I, I do want to acknowledge that it's probably, it, well, not probably, it is a legitimate way of processing grief. It's just not a legitimate way for Rada. Hmm. Yeah. Anything to add to that? <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry I'm a little out of it today. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, no worries. Um, I think there's also, and maybe now is a good time with this question to raise it, but this is... This is really a movie in some ways about whiteness and about um, white supremacy because Rod is black and she's trying to produce, or she's, she's written a play that is all um, black characters for a black audience, but the only theater that will produce it is this kind of weird, I, I don't know what you would call it, like Afro-nationalist ancestor worshiping won't pay you anything kind of place yeah um which i think the movie makes fun of to some degree Mm -hmm. yeah um and so in order to be produced on broadway and to actually make money from her art she has to start uh incorporating more and more like white ideas of what the black experience is and she's resisting that throughout the film so there is that kind of metaphorical wilderness i think i mean if we can go large to say like the metaphorical wilderness of being black in, in white America. Mm-hmm. And also of being a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you see that play out in particular? I mean, it's definitely like, there's a lot, I mean, we, we talked about how like sexuality is, is beneath everything, is the undertone of everything. And there's very much an awareness of, on, on Rada's part of like, this is a new frontier for her as like a sexual being she's going to start having menopause she's going to have hot flashes um she's not she is in some ways and not in others continuing to be viewed as a sexual object through the male gaze we see that in her like interactions with the homeless man on her street and uh her students (laughs) um and and various things like that so she's really trying to to figure out um you know what does 40 year old mean for her in like this very intersectional lens of black and woman. Yeah. Um, she does have a female gaze though, right? Yeah, she does. <laughs> she has a very strongly yeah. developed female gaze when it comes to the female. male body. And, and, it's, and it's like on display in the first scene, basically. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, what is she's looking at? Oh, no. She's hearing her neighbors have sex. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. and actively listening to them. You're pressed against the wall. Yeah, and it's like the start, height of her day. Right, yeah. but then they start crying as soon yeah. as our daughter. I think it's a male with voice crying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not... I, sex is used in a really interesting way because it's not necessarily celebratory, nor is it like dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I would describe. It's kind of there. It's kind of there. <laughs> One of the right. things that I noticed was like the the first time that like besides her listening in on her neighbors that things get like super sexually explicit is in her first 
playwriting lesson with her yeah. uh, like high school students. Yeah. And they everything that they want to do uh, is about sex. And she, but wonderfully, is like yes ending them. She's like, yeah, that's not a problem. Like she's not telling them to tone it down. She like totally gets it. And as the movie plays out, you sort of understand that through Rada's eyes, like she's maybe going through like a second puberty and sort of understands oh. like the the teenage obsession with sex and it, and respects it in a way that you know we tend to not as a society. What do you? What do you make of the fact that the play they eventually end up doing is written by the two boys and it's about a sperm trying to impregnate (laughs) 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 ovary? Uh, (laughs) I mean, is it that she's forty and hasn't had children? Like, is like I'm honestly asking. I don't know what to think of this. I feel like it seemed like silly to me almost because they were throwing out all these ideas and then she. The reason why she accepted that one is because she was tired of, like, just all these weird ideas. And it's like, okay, I might as well just do this one. Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, I don't know if there was some, like, deeper meaning within the film, but I, I felt like um, it was to show that she's like, okay, I'm going to work with these kids. I'm going to do whatever they want, even though this is a really, really weird play subject that I didn't necessarily want to do. We're going to go through with it anyway. Yeah, and it's also notable that the reason that, like the boys' idea just kind of comes out is because the girls in the group have, like, systematically ostracized themselves. Mm. Um, and sort of, like, because of the, all of the things they're dealing with as teenagers and, like, they're... And as teenage girls, they've become distracted from the class. Um, and so be, they're carrying so much more and they don't give themselves as many opportunities to speak up. So I think it is, like, you know, important that it's gendered in that way. Yeah. I also think, like, motherhood and ancestors are, like, just a a pervasive theme Mm -hmm. throughout the film, right? Like, when she goes to um, Forrest Amoja's theater, Amoja Theater, and she's asking him about getting paid, he just goes and sits down in front of the ancestors and invites her to sit with him and... It's gr- I mean, the, the dialogue is so hilarious because he's like, the ancestors want you to practice your art. And she's like, well, I have an aunt who really would also say I should get paid, right? Like, we, <laughs> that should be part of it. But towards the end, when she, um, when she finally does meet her brother at um, her mother's apartment, you know, her brother essentially says... Rada is saying, you know, our mom's life was wasted. She never became the artist who she intended to be when she arrived in New York. She didn't gain the fame or the fortune. And her brother says, she did what she wanted to do, and she always said that we were her best creation, right? So I, on the down low, I think there is, and I feel weird being a 50-year-old man saying this, but <laughs> maybe there's a like an insecurity about not having had children, like mm-hmm. not having produced descendants whom she could be the ancestor to. I don't know. What do you what do you guys think? Am I way off or uh, Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think it's impossible for a woman in American society to not be conscious of that at some point, especially when like there's all these reminders in her life of of lineage and motherhood and things like that. And she's also been like in some way trying to form her legacy through her students and is coming up like on this really frustrating, 
you know, conflict with them of like kind of let, needing to let them go and be independent um, and not hold them in, onto them as closely anymore. Yeah, it's, it's possible that she could have been thinking through the course of the movie as things get frustrating, like with her students, um, or um, thinking about her own mother and how she is supposed to be her own mother's legacy. Um, it, it probably did cross her mind a couple of times, even though she never explicitly says um, anything about it, at least I don't think she does. Um, but it, um, like Molly said, it's, it's hard to be a woman in America and not think about that at some point and about, well, what if, what if I had had children? Yeah. Um, and, and what would have happened then? Would my life have been different? Would it have been better? Would it have been worse? So trying to navigate that, too. Yeah, and when she's talking to Dee, um, the producer, uh, in kind of their first non-conversation, because she's the only one talking, <laughs> um, she says something about her kids, meaning her students, mm -hmm. But then she has to backtrack quickly and say, they're not my, like, I don't have children, but she kind of does, though, right? Like, she does love these kids. They are her legacy, as you, mm -hmm. as I think you were saying, Molly. So there's a lot of wilderness, really, to go through here. Um, there's also, I, I, I almost feel like sexual, sex is a wilderness here. Like, poor um, Archie, her agent, who has to <laughs> essentially be sexually assaulted to get her, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, her play produced. is There's a lot of gross sexuality in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, and sometimes it's held up humorously, but I think there's an undercurrent of despair yeah. beneath it. It's interesting. I think we're very used to seeing, like, the sexual exploitation and, like, assault of women in media. Yeah. Um, and so to have it be, like, as a plot device, right? So to have it be happening to a man is actually really significant. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, in a way, I, again, like, I'm thinking out loud, but there's, there's this whole gentrification theme, and in a way... She, she's being gentrified, her art is being gentrified, um, in that this kind of invasive white force is coming in and changing it and manipulating it in ways that she doesn't want. Um, and in a way, I think what happens to Archie is part of that, because Archie is Korean, mm -hmm. and, and Jay Whitman, the terrible producer who sexually assaults him, is white, you know? And so there is also kind of a, a sexual colonial... Uh, what? Colonization. Thank you. A sexual colonization going on. I, I knew I could look to you. I <laughs> have the word. Leave it to the linguist. Yes. Always ask the linguist. Um, yeah. No. Like, and it's interesting because they, like, they alert you to that being what's going to happen immediately. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to Holly's opinion on the use of black and white versus color, right? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. the first time we see color in the movie is when Rada is explaining her pitch. Yep. And um, so it's like, as before, you know, everything is various shades of black. Now you're, you're taking white in and spreading it out prismatically to create all of this color. You're seeing color in, the, in a context. Um, and so there's like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> whoa. Um, and so, 
like, at least that was my reading. Wow. I, I'm not an expert. I but... didn't look into that deeply. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. Well, no, I think that's awesome. I, that came from my brain. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's true or right. But, um, yeah, like, I, I was just like, oh, wow. And then, like, there's all of these. It's at this party, right, where she's trying to make this pitch to the skeevy producer uh, who's eventually going to, like, make her work with white directors and everything. And everybody's, like milling about and talking about all of these like derivative versions of things that they're wanting to produce and direct and it's all like making it whiter and and then you see like this flash of color and you're like holy shit like (laughs) this is you know her whereas we like tend to think of like oh and then everything was colorful and everything was like like it's Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz like everything is beautiful now it's actually like the frame like gets smaller and it's just like really unsettling because you've been in this like this black and white scene for so long now yeah yeah I could not figure that out I was like why are the color parts the parts that are in some ways the most negative right Mm -hmm. um but I I like your explanation right because suddenly white is an invasive force that is making like the colors yeah. <laughs> become too stark in a way. And and it's shocking. It's shocking that there are that the moments that are kind of most offensive, I'm thinking in particular about um, the jiggling mm-hmm. moment. You know, <laughs> that that that's in color while other things are it, it was like it made me like sit back from the screen like, oh boy. You know, mm-hmm. like woof. So um, did you all track the jokes about the different musicals? Yes. So there, well, there's like the Shirley Chisholm musical that they're producing, the Ida B. Wells musical. What was the third? There was a. Oh, I don't remember the musical, but I knew that they were going to do an integrated version of Roots. You were right. just totally right. missing the point. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? Uh, but there was a moment where. Um, when when Rada decides to start rapping, that old woman on the street says, "Carry a tub and just shot herself in the afterlife." <laughs> so, so that's why like ancestors are so full here. Like they're the they're both um, the needed voices, but also the thing that you have to live up to, and it's a really heavy burden to bear. Is living up to the example of. Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman. And And also living up to the example of Rada's mother, because she very much, like, lives and breathes the ideology of art that her mother gave her. Yeah, but don't you think she's rejecting it, too? Like, she sees her mother as a failure, right? Like, I'm going to compete against my dead mother by being a successful artist rather than a failed artist. Right, but it's still, like, in conversation, I guess. Yeah, I think that's true. Right, like... She can't deny her heritage. No, she can't, no matter what. Both her, her familial heritage and her cultural heritage. But there is a moment um, when she's rapping, she says, if I'm not creating art, am I committing a crime? Which I think is what you're talking about, Ma. You know, like that that need to do the art. Okay, well, I think we can get to the rapping by talking about what new thing is emerging in their lives. The rapping? The rapping, <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. and, and, and also thus, uh, like, this new potential relationship with, with Dee. Dee. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, yet another movie where there's a huge age gap relationship. I know. <laughs> <laughs> secret I'm, theme I'm sensing a theme of this. Yeah, this, it wasn't intentional um, at all, but there it is. Um, I don't know why. Um, 
I should, I should say also that Jed, after we watched Harold and Maude, said, it really puts the age gap in licorice pizza in perspective, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. But, um, okay, so there's this moment. So she goes to um, For- Forest Emoja Theater and is forced to pray to the ancestors, and then she almost strangles Jay Whitman, who is suggesting that she like delude her art um, so that he can write her terrible musical. But then she finds herself at home, and she's crying, and she prays to her mother, essentially. She says, Mommy, please tell me what to do. And at that moment, the sound of a car stereo blasting rap comes through her window as if it is a voice of the ancestors <laughs> telling her, go make the thing instead. Um, so what is your guys' experience with rap? Um, I don't usually listen to rap. Um, I, it's, it gives me a headache. I don't know why. <laughs> but, so I'm not like particularly used to it um, as like listening music, but I, I'm somewhat familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say like I'm about as familiar with rap as I am with country music. Which mm-hmm. is to say that there are a few artists that I know that I like in a couple singles, but it's not my genre of preference, and it's a little bit out of my depth to be discussing it on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we all three of us are white, so this is going to be pretty much out of our depth. But um, and I'm like you, Molly. Like I like the roots. I like De La Soul. You know, I like some of the like the old school mm-hmm. when I was in college groups, Diggable Planets, other other groups. But that's that's about the sum total of my experience. It's definitely not a deep, deep knowledge. But I will say this. I, um, I once heard Terry Gross interviewing <laughs> oh on Andre 3000 of Outcast. Interesting. Yes. And Andre 3000 said this amazing thing where he said, um, basically, when we were growing up, the music budget in the public schools was entirely cut. So nobody learned how to play instruments. But we needed to make art. So what we did is we went home to our parents' record collections and we turned them into instruments, them and the turntable, you know, with the scratching of the early days. Um, and that's where the art form emerged. It's uh, from, from this idea that if, you, if, if all you have, you know, is your mouth to make noises with, you're going to make noises with your mouth because mm-hmm. you need to make, because it is a human imperative to make art. <laughs> and, um, which I love. I mean, it makes sense to me. So for me, those scenes where she goes to visit Dee in his apartment in, um, I don't know, New York, well, was it the Bronx that he kept going to? Did I she, think so, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and it's just a living room with a fish tank and a lot of people smoking pot and uh, Dee sitting behind his board <laughs> looking really pretty bored, maybe half asleep most of the time. Um, and people stepping into, you know, this little production area to rap. Um, it still had that feeling of, like, this is just made out of whatever material you can find, right? This is not, like, conservatory. This is, this is found art made from people's most intimate experience, or at least when it's good. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So what did you all make of those scenes? Um, I did, I have studied um like the the beginnings of rap i took a course on um music um like popular music and Mm. the history of it um so i know a little bit about like how it started out and it's just the whole process is just so creative 
Um, and it's interesting, like the, the D looking so bored, but then when, when um, oh my gosh, what's her name? Rada. Rada, why did I forget that? Um, when Rada is rapping, um, he is so interested, he is so enamored, um, and he, I remember later on in the film, he says to some, somebody who's rapping to some of his beats that, um, he's like, you're not even saying anything, like, what, what is the purpose of what you're doing? Um, that it's, that what's going on, it's losing its purpose here, and that Rada had purpose to what she was saying, so it's like, it's kind of like she was able to find the purpose that she was looking for and put that into her words that that whole creative process is just um very it was a lot of fun to watch it um showing up throughout the movie yeah yeah i think one of the the interesting things about the way that rap was on display in this movie was that it was very like much in sort of the subgenre of freestyle rap um, we saw that in the rap battle, and it just also seemed to be that most of the time when Rada was rapping, it, it was coming to her improvisationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that, from my understanding, is like a more of more in the the keeping with like the original style of rap, and less like kind of what the new stuff that we have today. And it's interesting um, that D like kind of rejected the the other rapper who is rapping, you know, as generic things, but is very similar to, like, what we hear on our car radios, mm-hmm. and recognize that Rada was getting at something that was more in, like, the original essence of rap. Um, I also, like, absolutely love that the things that Rada was rapping about are not the things that generally get rapped about, mm-hmm. so that was also, like, really new and fresh and exciting, and I thought, like, much more representative of, like, what rap is all about, or mm-hmm. it was originally all about. yeah. Yeah, she raps about poverty porn, and this is not a poverty porn movie. Like, the neighborhood she lives in is not terrible. I mean, there is a homeless guy yeah. across the street, there's but... There's homeless guys all over the I know, we're here at St. <laughs> Stevens. there's a homeless guy across the street right now, you know? Yeah. So that that's not a poverty porn thing at all. And um, and Dee's neighborhood, you know, there's, there's some intimations that it's a little dangerous, that, you know, she should have been walked home or watched over in the neighborhood... But we never see anything, you know, all that all that terrible, um, and it's a little like it's a made up phenomenon, you know. Not that people don't suffer, but that um, white people get way too excited about the suffering <laughs> of of black people and, and others, um, and that's part of what the movie is critiquing. Why do we do that? That makes me think of colonialism. Okay. I've also taken courses on colonialism. I'm You're just, so well educated. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but that the part of colonialism and colonial colonialist discourse is this idea of paternalism, ah. um, where where the white people go in and colonize these places um, because they can't take care of themselves. So look, they need help. Uh-huh. Um, they they need the paternalist. Um, usually white dudes to come in and um, like give technology and medicine and um, and I feel like the idea of poverty porn is very similar because mm-hmm. in um, showing just these ridiculous um, like uh, the things she was talking about in her song just well, obviously like this doesn't happen in real life um, but that if if there's like a white creator of this poverty porn it's saying oh look um, look at 
like these people, they need help. They're different from us. Um, it's further ma making these differences rather than tying people together. Um, being like, it's just life. Right, and, and therefore we have permission to come in and demand our oat milk as we yes. gentrify <laughs> areas because they need us. Mm -hmm. They need our economic stimulus and everything else. So exactly. it's a kind of a form of neo-colonial... Tell me again, Molly. Neo-colonialism. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also like a little bit about like, you know, it, a piece of it is, is like patting ourselves on the back for not being neo-colonialist um, and being like, oh, we know that, that how things are and we know that we need to like let black people have their neighborhoods and so we're not and we're not gonna you know we're gonna celebrate their their culture and their and it's all this othering that's happening so that you know white people generally liberals can can like kind of sit back and feel self-satisfied that they did the quote-unquote right thing right um so it's yeah it's like in some ways like no matter what you're doing you're you're engaging when you've been exposed to poverty porn in any way yeah and i think like another piece of the puzzle is that she's also looking at black people who are like choosing to engage that in in that discourse and create you know these images or these stories for white audiences of of poverty porn and she's looking at herself and the deals she's making to get her play produced and seeing how it's turning into that that she's creating something now for like the white lens yep. and that what was once like you know just like a standalone critique of gentrification is now like a way for white people to feel woke right yeah and one of the things I love about the movie is that the the black art that is in it is not a monolith in any way like it's incredibly diverse there are all these different expressions of, of black art and black life and um, it's not reductive you know whereas I think like a Ida B. Wells musical is reductive right it's exactly what you're saying it's like let us white people celebrate your life but in a, a format an artistic format that we understand which is a musical mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah I mean did they like did they like explicitly name drop Hamilton no, but it was very clearly. <laughs> I don't think there can be any doubt. I was like, I, I felt like they did. I felt like the whole thing was like a commentary on like, on like the social phenomenon of Hamilton. Yes, I agree. But that like, I mean, there were just beautiful little touches. Like when she's at her her dead mom's apartment, they're looking at the painting on the wall that never sold. She calls it, you know, mom's uh, Ethiopian Coptic phase mm -hmm. right and it is like it, it has that appearance and at the very end in the second time watching it when she and Dee are walking to the convenience store together there is some Coptic art on the side of the convenience store mm -hmm. I was like that is a that is a nice touch of set design right there right <laughs> that is a callback to remind us that these ancestors are there watching over mm -hmm. but also you know that ancestry can take all sorts of different forms it can be Coptic African art it can be um, you know, early rap, uh, you know, going back to, the, to you know, the 70s and 80s in terms of, of what D is pursuing as an artist or um, others are. It can be anything. 
Um, and it's not just what the white imagination wants to allow it to be. So. Yeah. What do we make of the use of color in that last scene? How is color used? I don't remember. So it, like as they're walking to the convenience store in a clothing shot, it like gradually turns into like color. Oh. But it's for the the only time that color is used in a full screenshot. Wow, I didn't notice it. Maybe yeah, because it's it's, it's hard to see. It's very subtle. Huh. I don't know. What do you make of it? I have no idea. That's why. <laughs> well, because like because if we're sticking with my original theory, right? That like this the introduction of color is like you know because there's like a white prismatic lens, then like is the end of the movie like whiteness? You know, like Ooh, I hope not. I hope not. And, yeah. and maybe it's the difference of of having like a like a a cropped shot versus not is the di I don't know. Yeah. Um, because it is like the only, like I said, it's the only shot in color where it's full screen. Huh. But it's also a lot more muted. Um, so I think it disproves my earlier theory, if anything, but I don't know. I, when I saw the changes in color, um, I thought, um, oh, this is um, the ideal or the past. Um, because the color it showed up for um, when she's having memories of her mother, um, and it, the the smaller screen is, I don't I don't know how to explain it well, but it's it's like seeing something at the back of your mind when you're picturing things in your mind. That's what it reminded me mm. of, um, and even like the jiggling that you um, talked about, that's was also something that happened in the past, um, and with, with her play, this is um, a creative idea. Um, they actually all all the color shots have to do with creativity in wow. a way too. If you think about it, um, like how to how to um, idea creative idea for the play, um, her mother's creativity, um, the the exploitation of creativity, um, mm. and then perhaps at the end when it changed to color very subtly though, um, it's it felt like the color was coming back into her life as in, and she was, had gotten past the grief uh, and like gotten past maybe the memories and was able to introduce that creative space into her life more broadly. Yeah, it's a bad choice of words, but like it's almost as though her like creativity and her living essence were like integrated oh. in a way. Mm -hmm. I like Holly's theory better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, she she returns to her life in a real way. I mean, that's... So I while I was watching it this time, I kept thinking of uh, James Cone, the great mm -hmm. theologian, who, um, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which we read uh, as an adult formation thing uh, like a year and a half ago, he talks about... Um, the juke joint and church as the only places in the black experience of, you know, the, the 19th and, and first half of the 20th century um, where black people could go to escape from the white gaze. Um, so the juke joint, you know, was their place to go party and let it all hang out, and but also a non-white space, right? They could be fully themselves and church was the same place, except not in terms of partying, but in terms of devotion and both both exposed or revealed authenticity in people's nature, um, because 
there was no kind of policing by the white gaze. And I, I, I kept thinking, this movie is very juke joint, without a doubt, you know? But I think in the same way, it is like, it wasn't, it's not really for me. You know, like, it's like, it is about the white gaze, <laughs> what the white gaze does in some ways. But it, it asserts its claims in a way that feels very liberated mm-hmm. from that gaze. And I think that's kind of, you know, at the end, that's, that's what has happened. She's been liberated and can be, like, authentically within herself um, there's a real there's a real freedom in it so what has to die in order for that new thing to emerge well her mom <laughs> <laughs> but also um, like her her play yeah mm-hmm. yep. she like gets the, the opening night she gets up there and she basically kills it yep literally and figuratively <laughs> yep um and potentially, like it's it's kind of left un- unaddressed, but it might be her entire playwriting career. Yeah, um, it's sort of implied that she has decided to move forward with rap and leave playwriting behind. Yeah. Although I'm not entirely sure what that means for her playwriting class and her students. Yeah. Yeah, I doubt she would leave them behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she would find a way to be with them, but maybe she turns it into a spoken word poetry class. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. What, Holly, do you see anything else that has to die? I, well, I guess her old way of life also has to die. Um, and I, I guess we don't see that too much in the movie, but just just the way of, um, like, her life before she turned 40. She has to give that up so that she can accept, okay, I'm 40 now, um, I'm, I'm middle-aged, and I'm still rocking it. Yep. <laughs> so so has to has to say this time has passed, but that's okay. Yeah. And I can still do great things even at forty. Yeah. But I think the great things will be different. Like I mm-hmm. and maybe I'm like reading too much of my own experience into this, but you know, I, I started out life wanting to be a writer and there was this amazing moment of liberation and kind of my um probably my mid-30s, mid to late 30s, where I realized I didn't have to be. <laughs> and I was like, and it felt, it felt so liberating. You know, it was just like, oh, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to win the Nobel Prize. Nobody, nobody wants that for me. I don't even want that for me anymore, right? So, um, so I think there is this kind of success narrative in terms of art, which is... Um, really constricting and can be kind of terrible and to escape from it is is kind of a beautiful thing yeah we see that for Rada like you know in through the symbolism of like her consistently referring back to like the 30 under 30 thing that she won and how she feels like she's got to do like you know essentially continue to like live out that achievement yeah um going forward well, and it, it kind of makes sense of the rap battle, too, which is, it's always, like, I, and this is, I think, probably, like, middle-aged white person speak, but, like, I didn't really get it, you know? I was, like, watching it, and I was, like, I, I don't understand why this is entertaining or why it is bringing forward the elation in her that it is obviously bringing forward, you know? Maybe I don't have to get it, but I, but I think the power of it was that there was almost no one there. Right? Like, if you look at uh, the crowd, there are maybe 30 people mm-hmm. gathered around. But I think the reason Dee brings her there is to say, 
you don't need big crowds. Like you don't need accolades. You don't you don't need anything, right? You just need to do your thing and find the joy in it. And that should be enough. Yeah. What I appreciate about the rap battle was that it was like a demonstration that there is a place for her in rap. That she's not like going oh. to be like the first woman mm-hmm. from like the streets of New York to to be a rapper. Or even um, the first woman of a of an older an older woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, like the I think the, the participants in the rap battle were distinctly younger, except for maybe one, but um like they were all just like they they were from different boroughs, they were mm-hmm. representing a diversity of styles and opinions. And it was basically like a, an illustration, a demonstration that there was space for her in rap. That's it. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really see it, but you're absolutely right. Um, okay, anything else that has to die in order for something new to emerge? Oh, her friendship with Archie has to die. Oh. Or oh, not yeah, her well, friendship, her, but her, her professional relationship. Yeah, yeah that, was, relationship. that professional relationship wasn't working out so well for either of them, I don't think. Yeah. No. No. Tension. Yeah, and honestly, like a new thing that is emerging is this new era of their their friendship that uh. is like you know so beautiful. It's spanned all these decades of you know, and they've seen each other through various stages of development, and they're moving into their forties together. She's also not alone in that, right? But she needs to like in, as part of letting go of her dramatic career, yeah. she's letting go of that particular relationship with Archie and creating space for a new one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up. Um, did you guys like the film? I think... I think... <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like like you said earlier, I, I had the distinct notion the entire time that this wasn't for me. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's perfectly acceptable and... I admire it artistically, but I don't, I don't, I can't say I enjoyed it. Huh. And I don't think you have to enjoy a movie to appreciate it, but hmm. what I think about you, you do like it. Yeah, <laughs> probably. How about you? I did like it. I, I was surprised by how witty it was. Um, I, I love Rada. I thought she was so funny. Yep. Um, and, but also like so relatable yeah. too. Um, and I don't know. It was, it was a fun movie. Um, in some ways, and of course a serious movie in other ways, and I think it mixed those two nicely, so I, I thought it was fun to watch. Yeah, I, I think I liked it more the first time I watched it. Um, I don't know if it holds up hugely as like a rewatchable type movie, although the humor holds up. Like, I found myself laughing a lot, and, I, and I'm a sucker for humor, so that, you know, so that's, that's always going to get me. Um... But, uh, you know, an ad- a question that Judd and I used to ask on the podcast and that he reminded me of last night is, you know, if you were going off for 40 days into the wilderness, would you take this movie with you? <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd take this movie with... I, I think you're... I feel like it probably does hit differently the first time you watch it rather yeah. than the second time. As a, as a first watch movie, if you haven't seen the movie and you're going into the wilderness and you have a TV with you... Might as well, um, but I don't know if I'd bring it for a second watch. Yeah. yeah, the thing I keep like, I guess like turning over in my head about the movie is that it's like so critical of all of these like ways that art can be derivative, and but the title itself is derivative, and that has, I think that bugging me soured the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say that it's. 
subversive because she's a black woman like taking up a space that was previously occupied by like a straight white man but maybe I don't know <laughs> like it just it just feels ironic in the wrong way hmm. yeah it feels like a very rap thing though like there yeah. are a lot of puns in rap you know a lot yeah. of wordplay so it kind of fit for me but I, I like I said I didn't find it as rewatchable so I probably would not have taken it into my wilderness uh, since we didn't ask the question last week, would you have taken Harold and Maude? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that movie too. gives me a Yeah, okay. Every time Harold dies. I'm happy. All right, well, next week's movie will be The Wedding Banquet, which is uh, Ang Lee's movie from the early 90s, I believe, and I have not seen it since then, so I'm very curious about how it holds up. Um, but I remember it be I loving it then and thinking that An Lee was going to be the greatest director of my lifetime, <laughs> which sadly has not panned out. But still, um, voting banquet. Join us then, dear listeners. Mm-hmm.